Welcome to The Raw Review. My name is Matthew. And I'm Briley. And we'll be your co-hosts for this series of conversations where we'll be sitting down with collectors, artists, and other members of the RawDAO community. Today we'll be talking with Alejandro Cartagena. Alejandro is a founding member of RawDAO, as well as the co-founder of Obscura and Fellowship Trust. In this episode, Alejandro tells us his story of becoming a photographer and paving the way for other artists through Fellowship and Obscura. We also discuss the Magnum Photos 75th Anniversary NFT Collection, which he curated and five pieces of which were recently acquired by Raw Dow. As one of the most active members of the NFT photography community, Alejandro has lots to share about onboarding traditional artists to the NFT space developing new models to sustainably fund artists, and his advice for new photographers trying to find success in the space. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Raw Review podcast, Alejandro. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for the invitation and so exciting. Yeah, it's so nice to sit down for a one-on-one conversation. We've been in so many Twitter spaces and Discord calls together. We met at NFT NYC, and now we get to really just sit down together and just shoot the shit. I love that. I love that. It's these opportunities that you get to like figure out by speaking what you've done and what you think, like you get to understand yourself. So I, I really, really enjoy doing interviews and just sharing ideas. So let's jump right into it. We've read that you worked on a bachelor's degree in music before getting into photo, which which is funny because I actually studied music in university before I did a BFA and an MFA in photography. So I'm just curious, which instruments did you play and why didn't you end up pursuing music as a career? And if you could just walk us through kind of what came after that and your trajectory as you came into photography. For sure. I was doing music and I was also doing a leisure management bachelor degree. So I was doing two degrees at the same time. And in music university, I was studying the double bass. That was my instrument and composition. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a band, did a little, like a CD at that time. That's what we did. CDs. Yeah. Uh, I'm showing my age here and it was a lot of fun. And then I actually had an opportunity to finish my leisure management degree in Canada. And I went to Nanaimo in British Columbia in Vancouver Island. And that just took me in a different path (laughs) with my life. I left music. uh, I started dating uh, a Canadian girl and we ended up traveling around the world and just having fun. And four years later, I finished my leisure management degree. I was done with the music part of it. And I went into what I I knew how to do up to there. I was working in hotels and restaurants. So I kept doing that. I was a manager at McDonald's. I was a manager at a Marriott hotel. And then my family had a restaurant and I started working with them. And lo and behold, one day I was fed up with everything and I said, I quit. And I basically got into photography because of that. I was 27 at that time. So can you walk us through a little bit about your early relationship to photography, how you started making photographs and how you later went on to study photography? Sure. So that last year working at the restaurant, I started taking photography workshops. At architecture school, they had like a little Saturday class and I would just show up and I learned how to develop film and just felt the connection with the medium. I had actually been in a bird watching club when I lived in Dominican Republic and I learned how to take pictures and develop film when I was 11. So it was there in the air, but never really paid too much attention. But those classes, those Saturday classes, apart from meeting new people and like other like excited people about the idea of photography, that kind of started my path into going to more workshops and and just 
trying to understand what photography was. And one workshop in particular was very informative and, and made me basically leave everything to do photography. And it was a workshop called The Analysis of Images. It was a theoretical class. The teacher, basically what he did was show us images and question what we thought that image was. And he was basing it on, there's this book called How to Criticize a Photograph. And you can look at an image from an economical perspective, a sociological perspective, a psychoanalytical perspective, an aesthetic perspective, a historical perspective. So basically it was like dissecting images over and over and over again on the screen. And it was five days looking at images, thinking of images. And when I was done with that workshop, I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I came back to my family. I told them, hey, you know, I want to be a photographer. And they're like, yeah, whatever, you know, but you still have to come work at the restaurant. <laughs> so I had a 35 millimeter camera that I had bought before when I lived in Austin, Texas for a year. I started paying a little bit more attention at what I was photographing. And I started documenting the people I work with and doing portraits and stage photographs, doing a lot of self-portraiture. And there was a really important portfolio review in Guanajuato, Mexico. And it was an international portfolio review. People from the US, from Europe were coming to review the work. Uh, gallery directors, museum directors, etc. And I showed up, I actually submitted some images via Hotmail, uh, <laughs> showing more of my age. And they were really, really crappy images. I mean, I know that now, looking in retrospect, they were like very badly developed, but somehow I got selected to be part of the review and I showed up with my badly printed images that I printed in my bathroom and images that I developed at Walmart and <laughs> just started doing the reviews with people. And of course I got bashed that, you know, it was really bad. Like my technique was bad, my printing was bad, everything was bad, but they were intrigued as to what I was photographing. Mm. And at the end, they gave a prize for the best 10 portfolios. And I got selected between like 150 people with my shitty photographs. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that for me was a, okay, I must be doing something right. This is going to be my life from now on. And the prize was they gave me, I think it was four workshops, one on the history of photography. One was on scanning and printing. The other one was on fine art printing. And then the other one was on Photoshop. And so with that, I basically took a crash course of how to do really good photographs and how to position my artwork or my vision in the history of photography. And that set me up to start in photography. And I still felt that I needed more. And I came back to Monterey and here in, in Mexico and I started researching, okay, I'm going to do another degree. I'm like, ah, it was like, oh, I don't want to do that again. And I ended up going to the place I was doing the workshops. That's a museum and an archive of photography. And I went and I said, hey, by any chance, do you guys need help? Like. Do you have a job that maybe I can do? And they said, no, but if you want to volunteer, you're welcome to come and work for free. <laughs> and I said, yes, okay, I'll work for free. And for one year, I just went and did whatever they put me to do. I was painting walls, peeling letters off walls after exhibitions. I was doing whatever they said I needed to do. And I, I didn't stop going. And after a year, they said, okay, we'll hire you. So I started working as a digitizer of the archive. That was my job for five years. And that's literally where I learned how to be a photographer, scanning other people's work nine to five every day. That was my job all day. It's funny that you spent so much time scanning and digitizing because I used to scan film for clients and that was oh, wow. <laughs> something that I did for, you know, three, four or five years. I was doing drum scanning and Photoshop work and all that same sort of stuff. So it, it's wow. funny that we have we have both that <laughs> that music background, but also the digitizing, <laughs> which is which is funny. So maybe we're cousins or something because this is a very funny <laughs> trajectory that we share. That is crazy. I mean, that, that those are really big coincidences for sure. <laughs> yeah, same here. My first job was working in a photo lab and digitizing hundreds of family archive photos just all the time on a little Epson. Yeah. <laughs> and 
And you have a really extensive background in the traditional art world. I'm wondering if you can share a bit more about your journey from this point forward to becoming an established artist and finding success as a photographer. You know, how long did it take before your work was seen in commercial galleries, museums, print publications and monographs? Sure. After that portfolio review and working at the museum and in the archive, I kind of like saw other artists and other photographers have a career. So that close exposure and possibility to see it like closely and read their texts, see how they basically were artists, that really informed me into what I needed to do to actually be seen and to be part of the photographic scene. It wasn't easy, but I had a path. So for four years, while I was working at the archive, I was like hard at it, like just going to work, leaving at five and just photographing all the way till eight, nine PM every single day, like just boom, boom, boom. I started submitting applications to grants. Uh, I got a couple of grants all the money that was coming in from that. I was buying film, scanning film, printing, experimenting. And that really accelerated my possibility of becoming an artist because I completely devoted myself to it. I had a little like a small traumatic moment a year into being a photographer. And that was in Houston, Texas. I went to another portfolio review at PhotoFest. And I remember just getting again slammed this time, not because of my technique I had you know I was the prints were good and they looked fine but it was that I had no idea of a bigger picture of what was around me photographically so that really took me into a path of reading and researching and really trying to see how my work communicates with past photography, ideas, aesthetic concept, historical moments so that was the path that I started to like experiment with and go after. Now that sounds all really easy, but in the meantime, I was doing a lot of crap and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and having like solo exhibitions and spending money and not selling absolutely anything. I mean, I think my first exhibition, I sold two prints at like 200 pesos each, which is like what is that? $10 each. And, you know, it cost me like 400 bucks to print it plus the frame, etc. So it wasn't successful economically, but it was almost like a like proofing if what I was doing could mean something to somebody else. And just getting those two sales was like, okay, assurance, there's something there. Let's keep going. And, you know, next show, I maybe sold five prints. And it's like, oh, okay, it's getting better. And then, you know, I had a, I remember having a solo show at a nonprofit gallery and nobody came but my mom. <laughs> oh, it was so sad. It was so sad. But I was like any space that anybody offered me to do an exhibition, a cafe, a nonprofit gallery, a gallery in a park. I would say yes, 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 yes to everything. And in retrospect, what that did for me was that I learned the mechanics of being an artist, how to think of an artwork, how to pursue the body of work, how to exhibit it, how to sell it, how to how to do all the stuff. So by the time, I think 2010 more or less, when I kind of started getting a little bit of recognition and I started being shown in group shows and uh, museums started to contact, I already knew how to do the thing. So that really helped to have a, like a standard of professionalism that made me seem like I knew what I was doing, which, you know, I, I kind of did, but I was yellowing it a little bit too. <laughs> But to some instance, I knew a little bit of what I was doing because of all the track that I had before that maybe didn't do really anything for my career per se, like no like big collections or collectors. It was just the motion of doing projects, exhibiting them, 
and trying to find publishers. And it was failure after failure after failure. And then five years passed and it was like, boom, okay, I'm ready. Uh, I started getting book deals. A gallery started coming to want to work with me. And that was 2009 and 2010. And then right at that moment, I felt, what, what do you call this? The imposter syndrome. I was starting to get seen by the, the art world. And I'm like, I didn't even study art. Like I felt a panic and I went and did a master degree in visual studies, not even in like a bachelor in fine arts. It was a visual studies, a very theoretical because I already was doing images and photographs and projects. Right. What I didn't have was the backing to talk about it in a theoretical way and in a like a, a mindful way as to what is this in the context of art. So that was two years of my life and I started teaching at university. So yeah. That's how I got into the, let's say, the art world somehow. Do you feel like there was a particular moment that you remember where you felt like you made it? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I Before that feeling, I was in a deep depression. Like, I, I finished the master's degree. I quit my job at the university. I stopped <laughs> consulting for the archive and the museum. And I was with nothing. I had absolutely nothing to do, no job, nothing. And I remember my partner would just like, she's a psychoanalyst and she was like, you need to go to analysis because <laughs> I was sleeping in until like three, four in the afternoon and just there was no point. I had nothing to do and felt depressed. And then I got a big break. So the Research Institute contacted me to offer me a commission to document how people use cars in northern Mexico. And they gave me 12 papers and I was basically going to be like the photographic illustrator of these 12 papers from these PhD the uh, researchers on the city of Monterey and the metropolitan area. So I, you know, I read them all and it was like, okay, there's, you know, there's ideas of traffic, there's ideas of travel, there's ideas of personal intimate space and public space, many things that have to do with the car. And so I went out and I started photographing that took me out of bed and I photographed traffic. I photographed people in their cars. I would travel with them while they were driving to work or going to a friend's house. I would photograph people's garages anything that had to do with cars. And in one of those places, I was documenting the cityscape from a high point of view. And I photographed practically like a stopped highway. There was so much traffic. And I looked down and there was a truck with some construction workers in the back of the truck. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Boom. And I took a photograph and that's actually carpoolers. Number one is the first photograph I took of that project. And I was like, wow man, there's something interesting here. Mm -hmm. And I was photographing with a digital camera. And that for me was like weird because everything up to then, I was always photographing with a film four by five, six by seven and 35 millimeters. So I took the picture, but I was like, nah, you know, I'm doing this commission thing. I'm not going to pay attention to that. And then another truck came and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do another picture. I, I took that. And that was it. But I liked the framing and I started photographing like all the cars, like taxis, VWs, trucks with people, without people, whatever came. I thought maybe this will help the researchers uh, in some way. And I didn't do anything with that for like three months. And then I had an aha moment of, wait a minute, like these guys that I'm photographing are coming from the houses that I had photographed five years before. And they're going to work to a part of the city that I had also photographed because it's very particular the way that that part of the city is developing. So. I did a project called Suburia Mexicana that included both of those. Mm -hmm. When I realized that there was an interconnection between these two other projects that I had and this new image that I created of the carpoolers, I thought, okay, here's a project I can dedicate myself to. And it's no problem that it's in a digital camera. I'll play the game where, you know, I'm not going to take more than two pictures per truck. And if, if I have a mistake, well, that's it. That's, that's how I photograph with film, I'm going to photograph the same way with the digital camera. And I had like a 5% success rate by doing that because the cars are moving and they're switching lanes. So it was a lot of luck and a lot of practice to get the good framing. But when that body of work, like I submitted it to the Sony Awards two months later and it got accepted, that for me was like, oh, 
something's happening here. And, and then immediately the New York Times published it, the Guardian published it, and then it was like, it hasn't stopped. It's been a decade, like 10 years. And that body of work, it just keeps going and going. And that was for me the first moment where I felt, okay, here's a project that maybe will put me on the map. I don't know if that's fair to say it, but that's kind of how I felt. And when did you get involved in Web3? Can you tell us the story of how you fell down this rabbit hole? So I was, I mean, we all were in the middle of the pandemic in 2020. And a friend that I had met earlier in 2020 in Mexico City, he was a curator at WeTransfer and he emailed me and said, hey, you know, there's this company called Foundation that is planning to do a, a project that is about digital objects. And maybe you're interested in selling like your work. And I'm like, OK, sure. Like basically 2020 went dead after March for me. I had like museum exhibitions and uh, a traveling exhibition that was going to happen. And it all just went south. So it was like, I'll do whatever and <laughs> whatever people send to me. So I got on an email with Kayvon and his team basically outlined that there was this thing called NFTs and it's selling digital images of your work. And I'm like, okay, that, I mean, let's try it. Why not? You know, I sent them three pieces of the Carpoolers work and I'm assuming they minted them because I don't know what that meant at that time. It was September, 2020. And, okay. but sure enough, it was on a platform and back then foundation worked where they asked me for a price, like a starting price and a finishing price and a, a starting date and a finishing date. So mm. whoever bought the NFT at the beginning gets the cheapest price and whoever bought the NFT closer to the ending, they're going to pay more for it. So it was like a, a 30 day or 50 day auction, whatever you decided as an artist. And so we put three carpoolers there and, you know, nothing happened. I emailed them two months later and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they said, no, you know, just be patient. I'm like, OK. And a week or two weeks later, the site disappeared because it was like their beta site. I remember we were like six artists on foundation at that time. And wow. And there was nothing to be found. I'm like, ah, whatever. Like it didn't work. And I didn't email them back anything. And then in February, 2020, I was doing a lot of TikToks and like doing behind the scenes of how I do my books and my prints and studio work. And my feet just started talking about NFTs and NFTs. And I'm like, wait a minute, like I've heard of this thing before and started to pay attention. And sure enough, somebody says like the main platforms right now are OpenSea, Foundation, Super Rare. I'm like, Foundation? I know those guys. <laughs> <laughs> So I, you know, I went back and I emailed them and I said, hey, you know, you remember me, Alejandro? <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, nice to hear from you again. If you want to get into the platform, you have to find somebody to invite you. I'm like, oh, oh, OK. You know, it's like they gave me the go to the back of the line kind of thing. And that was wow. fine, you know, because that's how the platform worked. But, you know, I still like started emailing and telling them, what can you tell me more? Because it seems like it's kind of different from what you did before. So they were very friendly and, and kept up the conversation with me. And that's when I met one of their lead people, Charles. And he helped me at the end find an invite with another photographer. Uh, that was like a month later. And then I got into foundation and I minted three pieces again. At that time, I had just started working with assembly. They were my dealers of my work and my prints and my books. And I told them, hey, maybe you guys want to like explore this NFT thing. I really don't understand it. Maybe together we can like support each other and try to like navigate what this whole space is. So we became like this study group and Ashlyn, Shane and myself, we would just be sharing text. We would be reading a lot about digital art, digital photography, uh, reading about the philosophy of blockchain, really kind of like imbuing ourselves in the space because we felt like, okay, if we're going to try this out, we better know what we're talking about. And that was like, you know, one month, two months uh, with three pieces minted and no sales, going to Clubhouse six hours a day, uh, talking in whatever space people let me talk, 
always received with, in retrospect, this kind of radio silence because what was happening with photography at that time was very niche. And I was like this outsider kind of, I wasn't talking the language to some extent, though I completely understood what was going on. And that kind of discouraged me. And honestly, I was about to quit. Uh, I said, okay, I'm going to try something else. I went to Tezos and to Hikagnunk and I minted like 300 archive pieces there. And I started selling archive photographs on Tezos on Hikagnunk. And then I told Shane, you know what? I'm just going to quit this. Like I'll leave those collections there. And if something happens, great. If you find a collector, great. You know, just like the traditional art world, you have a dealer, you give them your prints and you tell them when you find a buyer, let me know and <laughs> goodbye, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see you later. Uh, and, right. and then Shane came back like a month and a half later and he said, hey, there might be somebody who's interested in buying some of the carpoolers on foundation. Can you mint a few more so that he can see them? So I went and I minted a couple. I think I minted six more. And that person was Luis, the founder of Raw and mm. Fingerprints. And he bought five of the pieces. And two weeks later, everything was sold out. The 50 pieces that like as soon as they started selling, I had funds because I didn't have any money. Back then, it was super expensive to mint. I was spending like $1,000 per minting and listing on foundation it was super expensive wow like wow just insanely expensive and so the funds started coming in and and it was easier then i figured out because i didn't know gas was cheaper in the middle of the night or early in the morning so <laughs> i had no clue about Gwei. so once i figured that out i was minting a, maybe I mean, still expensive, like 300, 400 bucks per NFT, but I had the ETH to do it. So I'm like, let's do this. Let's make a collection on foundation. And I did the 50 pieces and they sold out. And that was like the start of the conversation with foundation to tell them, hey guys, like, why aren't you doing collections? Like these are individual tokens. Like, can't you do collections? And three months later, they created the foundation collections. And I was part right. of the first, the first three artists that did a manifold contract imported into foundation to do that. So yeah, so that was my ride into NFTs. And you've been very active as an artist in the space, but you've also built up new communities like Obscura and Fellowship that are now shaping the future of photography and NFTs. And this seems like a very different goal than just wanting to be an artist in the space and certainly one that requires a huge amount of time and commitment. And I'm wondering what made you want to take on this role? Yeah, uh, I'm stupid. <laughs> Let's start there. <laughs> I, I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just joking. No, I've always like way from the first times that I was learning of photography and going to those workshops, these artists that were teaching me about photography, they were doing it for the love of helping other people like pursue their career. So right from the beginning, uh, I felt that people were being really nice and really helping me to get into photography. So I've always felt that desire to give back and to share what I'm learning and what I'm doing. So I first had a, a photography school. I had that for like six years with a, with a friend of mine, Ruben. And then I was teaching and, and doing workshops. So basically I've, I've been in this thing of helping others and helping others see what they can do with their art and helping them find paths with their art. I was also part of a photographer's guild and I was in charge of doing workshops and doing their annual meeting. And like I did three conferences. I did a, a conference on photo books. I did a conference on the history of photography and another conference on portraiture and photography. And those were like five day long conferences with speakers coming from all over the place. So I had that in me of like helping other people and building community. It's just that in the traditional art world, we don't call it that, but I've been doing that for a long time. And when I had that moment of, you know, a little bit of success with the carpoolers, I thought, wow, this is such a, a great opportunity to expand photography to new collectors, to new viewers, to a new audience, basically. So I, I thought, okay, 
how can I do that and help other people find this same luck that I've found in the NFT space? And the first project that came to fruition was Obscura. And that was part of a theory that I was thinking and speaking about a lot at that time, where that photography was going to have in the NFT space was going to have two main parts. One that was based on everything that came before the NFT technology was available for photography and everything that's produced and its first iteration in the world is as an NFT, then as a print, as a book, whatever it needed to be. So I wanted to focus on that, on the second, on the latter. What can we do to produce work that starts its life as an NFT, hence having provenance and not being like an image in a flea market of the internet, you know, photographs that are connected to people and to ownership in the internet. So that was Obscura. And, you know, I, I started speaking at that time with Tony Herrera and then with Cooper and Emmy. She was uh, our developer for a while. And we all coincided with, you know, the idea of it. And we said, okay, let's do it. And at that time, the first iteration of the project was called CPN, Commission Photographic Network. Uh, and it was too corporate. <laughs> and Tony said, no, <laughs> we need to scratch that. And, okay. and Tony came up with the idea of Obscura and we set off to that. And Obscura's mission has been to produce work and help people produce work that sees its first life as an NFT. And yeah, it's been fun. It's so much work. We were doing numbers uh, the other day. We've, we have in, in our ecosystem around 350 photographers. Uh, we've sold around 600 ETH uh, in primary and secondary. So wow. it's been really, really exciting. And it's all based on doing new work. So that was Obscura. And then Fellowship came to be because I'm fascinated with the history of photography and I had started kind of like having really interesting conversations with Studio 137 he's a big generative art collector and he had bought some of the carpoolers right from the start and we were just talking on Twitter and he was like can you tell me a little bit more about photography and you know just just having the exciting conversations that can happen in web3 where you know a collector can literally just send you a DM and it's right there so we started talking more and more and more and more. And, and he said, can you recommend me stuff to buy? And I'm like, sure, I can help you. And, and then I told him, well, would you like me to find you like really good photography? Like I can scout that for you. Cause I, you know, I've been in the traditional art world and I know a lot of people, uh, and I can tell them if they want to do NFTs and we can buy them from them. So I started knocking on people's doors. The first person I went to was Christina Demidel and then Gregory Halpern, Jim Goldberg, all these people that, you know, I have relationship with in the traditional art world. And Studio 137 said, we'll help them on board and do their NFTs. So they, we were basically giving them grants to mint the work. And then we would buy some of the pieces that they brought to NFTs. So we were basically de-risking the production costs of doing NFTs, mm -hmm. which is kind of what, you know, a gallery does or a museum does for you. You know, they pay some of the production so that you can get exposure. It, it was almost like translating what I knew how to do at the museum and what I do with my with the galleries I work with. So we started doing that and we started collecting and we collected stuff that wasn't minted as NFTs. And we also collected work that was already in the ecosystem, already minted. And then we spent a lot of ETH on that and, and built a really very cool collection. But then you know, it was like, well, when this ETH is done, then what are we going to do? And so I told him, well, maybe we can try to sell the work and us make some money. And I told, I think it was Pelecas or who was, I can't remember who was. And I said, you want to do an 80-20 split, which is a very fair split compared to how I sell my work in the traditional world. I have to give 50% to my gallery. And, right. and so this 80-20 split seemed very fair and people started saying yes sure you can sell it and so we started selling work from people and and then we started building a team darius heim started to help us and being an advisor we brought in chris mccall from pier 24 
We brought in Paula Ely. She's the president of PAC LA, which is a group of traditional collectors. Chadwick Tyler, of course, is, has been there right from the start. He was also collecting on his own. And when I told him, hey, Studio 137 and myself are gonna start collecting, let's do it all together. So we basically banded together to be stronger. And so that started to happen and, you know, people started reaching out. Estates, photographers and saying, hey, you know, can we work with you guys? And we said yes. And that has been it. And then we had that massive project with August Sander that, you know, for us was an aha moment. Oh, my God, like you can do an archive, a photographic archive on Web3 and NFTs. And that was amazing to see the reaction of the whole community. And one of the things at the museum was that we're spending all this money to get people to get enamored with art. But when we did the August Sander project, it was so much easier to get people vested into a project and an artist because they become part of the project. They own mm -hmm. a part of it. And that was a case study of, wow, this is what Web3 can do for photographic legacy artists and, and archives at large. Like you can really make people feel vested in something because they have ownership in it. And at the museum, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get 50 people <laughs> at, a, at a conference or 50 people coming to the exhibition, right? And here it's suddenly like people come because they own the work, you know, they own the project. And that I think was a, a revelation for me and for the whole team. And then we had, you know, legal problems. We got a DMCA and luckily we won that case uh, a few weeks ago in Germany. But, you know, it's been a oh, struggle. Wow. Yeah, it's been a struggle because it's all new terrain. You know, these things haven't been done in the past. Right. But we have a team that is, you know, willing and and is very supportive. Uh, we have a Studio 137 and we have James who are our main like investors and builders of a fellowship. And, you know, they believe fully in the projects that we're doing. So with that support, we can keep on experimenting and doing interesting stuff uh, with fellowship. All right. So we'll get back to Obscura later, but maybe we can focus a little bit on fellowship for now. So fellowship is basically doing two things. It's onboarding artists to mint their work as NFTs, like the recent 137 collection that includes works by Gregory Crudson, Katie Grannon, uh, Laszlo Maholinaj, Laurie Simmons, Joel Meyerowitz, a, a lot of others. But also Fellowship is supporting artists by acquiring their work. So that's the Futures collection and the Contemporary collection, which are permanent collections. Yes. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the process behind Fellowship when collecting sort of what is the criteria that goes into deciding which works to acquire and who is responsible for these decisions how are they being made that kind of thing sure so yes fellowship has many arms and it's doing many things at the same time on the collecting part we have our lead curator fernando gallegos and he's basically our go-to person when it comes to doing the general curation which is the spark and then we have Chadwick, myself, we have Fred, we have Neil. Everybody can bring proposals as to what we want to acquire. We send it to Fernando. Fernando kind of like sees if it matches with the collection that we already have. He then sends us proposals of the pieces that could be interesting for the collection. And then we just have an open dialogue between everybody in the team. And then we proceed with acquisitions of the pieces that we want. It's a very a organic process. We had at some point a little bit more of ETH. So we kind of did a more of here's 10 ETH, here's 10 ETH, here's 10 ETH, go buy what you think is good. Because if I'm not mistaken, that was at the time when things were like really bubbling in the NFT space. So uh, we were thinking, oh, we're going to get outbid. We're going to get, you know, people are going to buy uh, the work that we want. So we right. gave ourselves a little bit of liberty and everybody could buy work or immediately send it to Fernando to get like immediate uh, yes or no. And that's when we bought a lot of the work from the futures. The contemporary collection, yes, that's a little bit slower because these are more considerate bodies of work in the sense that we really want to understand what the work is about and how it's going to fit into the larger collection. The futures is very much about how to give back to the community and to, you know, to be honest, to build diversity into the history of photography. So 
We're buying from people all over the world, underrepresented photography uh, practitioners. And that is something that is very interesting for us because we know that photography was built one way and it shouldn't only be that way. And we want to have that eclectic mix of voices, visions, and understandings of how photography is. And not only from the people who do the photographs, but what a photograph is in itself. Like we've bought abstract photography, we've bought black and white, landscape, portraiture, documentary, uh, street photography. We buy all type of photography, as long as there's some kind of cohesion that fits into to the larger collection. And then we have people who are looking for artists uh, and we have help with from Chris McCall, who's the director of Pier 24, Darius Himes, Paula Ely, Chadwick. We are constantly looking for people to see if they're interested in, in working with us. And then we also work with galleries that have already a roster of artists. So we have interviews with the galleries and we tell them our wish list of, is it possible to maybe address these artists to see if they want to work with us? So yeah, we, we have many places where we're looking for artists and of course people in Web3 and the latest project we bought from Summer Wagner. That was a project that Summer brought to us uh, a few months ago and Chadwick, hey, Holly, she's one of our team members and Fernando, they were helping her, you know, doing a little bit of mentoring of about the project and the images. So we bought some of that work and we were ecstatic that she was able to sell out the work a few weeks ago. We do many things. It, it's not a, a one sided project for sure. And in terms of building a collection, I'm wondering what are some of the advantages for fellowship as a more centralized organization versus raw which is governed as a dao mm -hmm. you know you obviously participate in both and like yes. the curation <laughs> process is a bit different so you've had experience working with both models so i'm wondering like your thoughts on that i think we need both i mean i have to say at the beginning of raw i thought that it was going to be a more centralized type of collecting because that's the only way that I understood how to do it. But then, you know, I was proved wrong. And the idea of community collecting and having a consensus has been fascinating to watch and to be a part of. So I think both are necessary in our ecosystem just for the fact of saying what other way can we do this idea of collecting? Because we already know how to do a centralized collecting method. That's what all collections normally work by. So I'm, right. I'm really, really enamored with the idea of raw and, and everything that comes from that. But I remember talking with Luis right at the beginning. It's like, this is going to be so complicated. And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's a community. It's an experiment. It's a social experiment on how to become a unified voice. So I really remember having so many conversations with him and him being like this really centered person that really made me see the value of the raw DAO. And that's why I'm still here. It's, it's just something that needs to happen because we need other ways to see how to do things in the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. The idea of it being like an experiment on how to become a unified voice. I really like that. Going back to Obscure and Fellowship, do you feel like the mission differs between the two and how do they like relate to each other? For me, it's very clear in my mind that it's two different missions because at Obscura, we don't collect. We only support people to do new work. And at Fellowship, it's about creating a collection and through collecting, creating education, creating culture and creating community. So it's just completely opposite philosophies and missions. Right. You know, they coincide with some of the artists that we've commissioned in Obscura. We've also bought their work that they've done before they're doing NFTs. And we've also collected some of the work that they're doing now as NFTs. So they cross paths, but the missions are, are different. Yeah, I mean, one of the fundamental problems with the art world is that art is not inherently profitable or valuable, and it's often seen sort of as a luxury. Um, mm. And therefore, we are always dependent on capital flowing in from collectors mm. and institutions and governments and, you know, all of the complex systems that come along with that, which includes commercial galleries and museums and all these things. I'm wondering if you see Obscura as a way forward, sort of a new model for 
addressing how to fund artists in a sustainable way. And here I'm thinking especially for emerging artists who are seen sort of as more of a risk uh, to collectors. How do we get them the funding that they need to make their work? How do we support artists who are not already established and not already successful in making money? I feel like this is a huge problem to solve and a yeah. really complex one, but it's one that Obscura might be positioned to uh, try and solve. That is it. You talked about it perfectly. I've been <laughs> witnessing for years the unsustainability of being an artist and growing up to be an artist that is just so, so I've seen many of my colleagues just drop their art practice because they it's not sustainable. So the Obscura model has been tapping into the experiment of how do we find patrons who can support the creation of new work. And this is what we did. We found a funding system where we basically help people create work and do photography, what they love, with the liberty of not having to it be a commercial endeavor in the end. Yes, it's a commission, which could be some kind of a commercial thing, but it's a commission of a personal project. So it's like right in the middle of an editorial assignment and a personal project. Mm -hmm. I think for me, one of the moments that really made me feel that there was something good happening with Obscura was uh, Alessandra Sanguinetti calling me from Argentina. She was there in December doing her commission and just telling us, hey, Alejandro, this is like, I feel like I'm 16 years old again, photographing for the first time. Like I don't have to ask anything or I don't feel any pressure. I feel complete liberty to do whatever I want. This is a magnum photographer with a 30, 40 year career. And I'm a big fan of hers. So her telling me that was like, wow, okay, there's something here and maybe a big possibility to transform this inefficient way of being an artist, which have we been cornered to be that way? And I remember talking about this in while we were building up Scuda and it was the idea of the museum model. Like everybody gets paid at the museum, the security guard, the curator, the office people, right? everybody. But the artists cannot get paid a salary but they're the ones who bring the people to the museum. Something's mm. wrong with that equation. They are the ones who bring the people and all the salaries are because these artists are geniuses and bring people to the museum with their art. Absolutely. So what, what's going on? Like, how can we build another model or even ask the questions? Like if an artist is gonna have a show at the museum, then he's guaranteed, I don't know, two or three years of a salary. I don't know, something different. And that was Obscura's question. Like, how do we do a model where there's a possibility for people to get funded and not feel so much stress while being a, an artist? It's hard though. And now with the bear market, it's even harder, but the model works and people were able to do new work. I think the number, we've done more than 10,000 images, supported more than 300 artists, sold in primary and secondary more than 600 ETH. I mean, it worked. Yeah, it really feels like Web3 is allowing us to create new systems or reinvent them. And we've seen that through things like Obscura and also in the broader photography space, like this rise of community. And it's kind of interesting because the word community gets tossed around in this space a lot. And mm -hmm. it often feels like we conflate building community with building a brand. Mm. In other words, is it the artist's job to spend most of their time marketing their work? Or is it the artist's job to make art? And yeah. <laughs> also both artists and collectors are trying to create value with these digital assets, but their incentives may not always be aligned. And, you know, yeah. artists need to make money to continue making work. But collectors are often buying works for the purpose of turning a profit, yeah. I mean, among other reasons, of course. But is it reasonable for us to expect artists to be a 24-7, one-person <laughs> marketing <laughs> photographer machine? Or do you yeah. feel like we have unrealistic expectations in this space for the extent to which artists should be involved in like promoting their own work? Yeah, that's, I mean, this has been a question right from the beginning, because at least my involvement in Web3 was immediately apparent was that you needed to have social presence in order to be seen. And those first, what was it, like almost eight months, I was doing my best to have social presence in Web3. And I was selling shit, like it wasn't working for me. And I was seeing that 
you know, what was being sold was very close attached to having a loud voice and being seen. So it was like, wow, okay, that it was humbling. And I didn't, you know, I didn't bitch and leave. I was like, okay, I'll try it. You know, I'll, I'll go to the spaces, I'll tweet, I'll do as much as I can. But there was a time when, when it was like, I burnt out. And, and that's when, you know, like I said before, I told Shane, Hey, you know, I can't do this anymore. Like it's, it's really consuming my enthusiasm with the space. Mm-hmm. And that was a early thing that has stayed with me. And, you know, I don't think it's bad to be socially engaged and be in, in social media. And I do it. it feels natural. And I used to do it in TikTok. I used to do it on Instagram. So I just basically stopped doing that and doing it on Twitter and Discord now. Right. But there are many questions of what exactly is it about building a community that is what's going to sustain value for projects. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, if there's nobody screaming behind the collection, then what's going to happen with the collection? You have two possibilities that it just basically goes to zero and nobody's interested anymore. Or two, it was so good work that it builds a community around the work naturally. For me, the example of that is the punks. Like I don't hear anything about the larva labs and the people like the designers, the artists that created punks being on Discord or Twitter. It was the owners of the punks who created the community of the punks. And that for me is it's because of the project not because of the creators. So for me, that's, I think, what's going to have more longevity. And we need to see what has happened before. And if we have this case study of one of the most valuable assets in the NFT space, the punks, with no community building on their part, then there's something there to look at and to think about. How did they do it? Well, it was the project itself. It connected people, the alternative nature of it, that it was a free claim, that it was doing something that nobody else was doing, it, that it was an experiment. All of those things put the people together and the proof was in the project. It wasn't on being on social media 24-7 screaming that it's there. It was the project itself. So for me, I want to model my work to that. Like, how can I do insanely good projects so that they, the projects themselves, become the community and build the community because of the project? Let's talk about the Magnum 75 collection that was created for their 75th anniversary and which you also curated. <laughs> Radau has recently acquired five works from this collection. You've referred to Magnum as the original DAO. Could you mm-hmm. explain what you mean by this? Sure. So Magnum is a cooperative and it was the original down in the sense that it was a group of people that got together to back a common idea or ideology of how they saw photography should be consumed and produced and delivered to the world. And so they build the agency and then they have a membership model in the sense of you want to be part of the group, you have to earn your entrance into the group and they've been building this group for 75 years and now they are a group of people that have common interests together they have a common goal together and they want to do photography and they're helping each other and they're supporting each other so for me that sounds very much like a DAO. (laughs) and the thing is that we didn't have that name before but That's what they do. The income helps everybody. The good news that happens for one person elevates all the other people in the group. So that is is very interesting for me. And I've been talking with Magnum for quite a while because I have friends that are part of the agency. Now, Christina de Mendel, she's a great friend. She now was named the director of Magnum, which is amazing. She just made membership and she was instantly named the director of the group. So wow. Yeah, it's it's great. And she's she's just a wonderful person and really innovative and not only with her photography, but the way she sees 
photography. She comes from uh, photojournalism and then left that to become an artist, to become somebody who thinks further than just image making to be like a, an illustration of news. So mm -hmm. she's a great addition and, and I'm sure she's going to help Magnum push towards a, a better future. And you were closely involved in the creation of this collection mm -hmm. as the curator who selected the works. And we often refer to Raw Dow as a lighthouse for NFT photography as it plays a role in the market by signaling value. Mm -hmm. And what do you think the release of this collection signals? Like what message do you think Magnum is sending out to the world with this collection? I think they've been thinking about NFT since last year. I first approached them in, I think it was like August last year, and they had already been consulting with other people about doing NFTs, but they had not found like a, a match in how to see it coming or being a part of the Magnum ecosystem. For me, this first collection that they're doing is a signal of encouragement for everybody who's in the NFT space, especially us photographers. It's a signal of value and a signal of validation that this is something that is inevitable for photography because photography I think has been an NFT since the 1960s and 70s when we started digitizing negatives and we started seeing images on screens. That was like, oh, that's an NFT right there. It's just we couldn't mm -hmm. put it on a blockchain, but we were transforming and outputting photographs to be seen on a screen. And if we want to go even further during the invention of photography, the way that people consume photography were lantern slides. People would pay money to go see images projected on a white wall and they would take nothing after that, but they were willing to pay money just to see an image projected and an immaterial object. So photography for me is like the most OG artwork out there. Like it literally was made for this output for the idea of the blockchain and being a digital original. So I think they see that happening and they've digitized their whole archive. So they literally have millions of NFTs sitting in their vault. I think it's like testing the waters and saying, hey, we think that there's something here for our archive that has documented the 20th century and basically shaped the way we see the world. That has value. And maybe there's an interesting output through NFTs. And that's what they're trying to do and say with this work is, what can we do with all these images that we've done and how can we find a new audience for them and how can we become part of a movement that seems to be coming faster and faster and faster which is the digitization of our world it's going to happen once and it's not going to happen ever again so this is this is the moment these next 10 years there's going to be so much digitization of everything everything, deeds, our birth certificates, everything is going to become uh, digitized and maybe be put on the blockchain. And again, we can hear the, the beautiful uh, construction sounds in the, in the background. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but thank you so much for your answer to that. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on how we assign value to work by Web3 native artists, what we might call so-called NFT artists, and artists who are being onboarded from the traditional art world. Many of the photographers who were early to the space, I'm thinking of Drifter, Kath Samar, Justin, have managed to create huge amounts of value. And I think it was Tim that pointed out that the top 10 photography collections account for roughly 90% of the total sale volume. I'm wondering if you think that this will change as time goes on and that work that carries a high value in the traditional art world will also translate to this new context? Or do you feel like native NFT artists will continue to dominate the market? I think we're coming to the moment where those two ideas are merging into a healthy moment for NFT photography. Uh, I was talking to a collector earlier this morning and he was getting uh, some comments on like, why are you buying photography from people who are not in the space building, et cetera, et cetera. And for him, it was very clear that he sees this as we need more adaptation from the rest of the photographers from the world into Web3. And if that means 
first just sending their work and then coming and interacting, then let it be. Because if we stay insular, then there's no longevity for the NFT space. It's gonna start becoming so insular that then there's no gonna be any circulation or building a value for the works. And that can work for eight months, nine months, and then it's gonna stall. So the adaptation and the bringing of new people into the space, even though it seems like, oh no, like they're not doing anything and they're just bringing their work. Well, they did something to do that work just because they built community outside through lectures and, you know, being teachers, publishing books, doing exhibitions. That's community building too. In my book, that is what it means to build a, a fan base and people who buy your books and buy your prints. There are thousands of photographers who are great community builders and have never said the word, I have built a community, but they, they have been building community for years. So I think we need to be a little bit more flexible with that idea because it's for the benefit of everybody who all the people who are in web3 and the people who are coming to web3 that were more mm -hmm. eclectic and just welcoming i mean think about it for me the the magnum thing is a validation to all of us who have been pioneering in here you know they're coming because we built something and it's what it is and we came because the punks did something five years ago so Right. It's 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 the way it goes. Like not everybody's going to come at the same time, so we need to be welcoming to that. Just zooming out a little bit, I want to go to something that you've said, which I think is our favorite Alejandro quote, if we had to pick one, <laughs> which Love is it. that digital photography was an NFT from the start. It just didn't have the tech to back it when it was invented. When it came into the photo scene, everyone rejected it as not photography. And here we are now giving it a home as a digital image on a screen in its native original form, end quote. So I was wondering if you felt like some of the dismissal or skepticism around NFTs is similar to the way that digital photography was initially dismissed. And do you feel like we will look back on this moment in a similar way? I completely agree or like, I believe in that. Yes, I was part of that moment when photography went from analog to digital. And I remember the heated conversations that an inject print is not a photograph and that, you know, it doesn't matter how good the paper is, if it's cotton paper, it will never be as good as a silver gelatin print and blah, 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 blah. Right. And here we are almost 20 years later and everybody prints on inkjet prints and yes there's still silver gelatin and you can do that and you can do a daguerreotype if you want but the proof is in the pudding that photography is about technology and it's always always been a curious medium and not understanding or not accepting that is almost denying the nature of the medium itself that you love it's like mm. no you know it's like no, it can't be an nft it's like you know, photography is about change. It's always changing. I mean, mm -hmm. it wasn't even, it didn't take one year before photography became a different thing. It was a one of one. Everything was perfect. There was a daguerreotype. We could have like built our whole narrative of photography about the one of one and competed with painting because it was just a one of one. But then here comes Fox Talbot and says, oh, what if we do it on a paper instead of copper? And suddenly he invented a second type of photography, not even a year later after that Daguerre declared his invention. That's the same thing. That's an NFT right there. He created the uncomfortable brother of the supposed original way that photography should be and then it wasn't time and then they said let's do it on a glass plate let's do a roll of film let's do a 35 millimeter film and every single time there's been haters and there's been skeptics that that is just not going to work and it's going to fade out and again the proof is in the pudding we just need to look back every single time we've adapted some things stay some things die out I don't know if you guys remember like the Advantix roll of film that it was it was a 35 millimeter, but it rolled back into the roll after you finished it. So it was like 
they were trying to solve the, the issue of protecting negatives so that they wouldn't get scratched. And that was like a fad for like five years and, and then they disappeared, right? right? Because it was solving a problem that the industry thought that the photographers had. It wasn't the photographers asking for a solution. So we've seen many of those like projects that seem to be interesting, but they don't feel natural to what photography is. And like I said before, the idea of photography is an image. And this is something that I've talked with Fernando Gallegos a lot. For us, we're finally coming to the moment of asking, what is photography? Is it a print? Is it a book? Is it a digital image? And we've come to a conclusion for now that it's an image. That's all it is. And then we decide how to output that image. But what is original is the image itself. It's not the print, it's not the book, it's not the NFT, it's the image. What is your advice for photographers trying to find success in this space? Wow, that's a difficult one. <laughs> <there's> no... <laughs> we got to give you the hard ones at the end. <laughs> there's no roadmap, to be honest. Uh, you have to... Okay, I, I have a, a good answer for that. Lower your expectations and you'll be able to succeed in this space. That is the most important thing, I think, for any photographer doing NFTs. There's a disconnect that's happening in the NFT space that doesn't happen in the traditional world. And understand how photography has worked for years before the NFT space. For fellowship, we have people who have been selling prints for 60 years and they still have not sold out their editions. Do they see themselves as a failure or they, or does anybody say that that collection, that body of work is a failure? It's unheard of. It just doesn't exist. The idea of selling out an edition is not something that we should be striving for because it just creates so much stress, like emotional damage, to be honest. Mm. Uh, so I would say lower your expectations and just have fun and do what you love. Just do photography. And if you do that, you might now find an extra collector that you didn't have with your books or with your prints. Now you have the opportunity of finding a collector of your NFT. That for me is magical. And for that opportunity, we should all be celebrating. It's like, oh my God, there was suddenly we have a third output of our work and there's all these collectors that are out there that can maybe support us. That's beautiful. Let's celebrate that. And if you sell one NFT, that's something that you didn't sell before and now you just sold an NFT. So that for me is the most important thing is come with very low expectations and leave with excitement because you were able to find a new friend, a new collector, somebody who can support you. Wow, thank you for that. I have one more question for you. Go for it. I want to know what are your future plans, whether it's for your own work or if you want to share about fellowship or sure. Obscura or, or something else, you know, give us the Ale Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> right now, the future for me is loving what I do. And to be honest, it's been a very hard couple of months, uh, the bear market, managing expectations of artists, and then <laughs> a lot of work, talking to lawyers, mm -hmm. uh, bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been, you know, a little bit down with the stuff that I've been doing. And I think I'm coming to the place where I feel excited again about the NFT space and doing stuff that just, it's like, wow, this is mind blowing. I want to keep doing this over and over and over again. And so for my immediate future is just finding a place of calmness and love and peace. So Aww. that's my alpha. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else. That's it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alejandro. We've really covered a lot of ground. I feel like we know each other better now. And we've talked, you know, everything from your trajectory and photo and the NFT space to how Obscura and Fellowship came about. So we're just really grateful for your time and for sharing your story with us today. So thank you. 
Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Briley. It's been a pleasure to converse with you. And yeah, let's keep doing that and building a fun space for the Raw DAO, which is our home, our common home. It's a beautiful experiment and we should all, you know, support it and keep building with it because it's really a, a great opportunity to do photography in a different way. Agreed. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Raw Review. You can find us online at rawdao.xyz and on Twitter at TheRawDAO. Join the conversation at discord.gg slash rawdao. The Raw Review podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. Views expressed by guests and the hosts do not reflect the views of RawDAO. The Raw Review podcast is not investment advice or a solicitation to make any financial decisions. NFTs and cryptocurrencies discussed in this episode are not endorsed by RawDAO. Do not purchase raw tokens, other cryptocurrencies, or NFTs in anticipation of financial returns. Please do your own research. research.